following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 47 today. Psalm 47. You know, maybe you wonder why in the world you come to church. Right? Why, why do we gather together? What's the importance of getting together once a week, uh, to spend some time together, to hear God's word preached, to sing songs like we sing, to celebrate the things of God? Why do we do this? Why, what's the importance of getting together? And the gathering of the church is really intended to be for a moment in time like an outpost of heaven. I want to ask you for a moment when you drove to church this morning, did you process that when you entered into the gathering of the saints, that the people that you're going to join praises with are simply doing something? They, they are, they are joining forces, voices in heaven, singing the glories of God. Did you make that connection at all? That this little gathering is a gathering of people to be an outpost of heaven, to be a, a moment in time when we set aside out of our lives just to get together to be reminded of heavenly realities. See, this world that you live in is clamoring all around you about how important it is. Some of you might remember just a few nights ago, uh, we, we, we sleep with our windows open at our house just because I like the cool air and our kids enjoy that. And in the middle of the night, we were woken up to what I could not believe I was hearing pouring rain on our house. We were getting literally dumped on and the thunder was clapping and the lightning was striking and it was, it was quite the display of the natural world saying to us, we are important. Do you notice us? Not to mention, are you, you're hearing right now, aren't you, the drum beats in the background of the upcoming presidential election, aren't you? You're hearing candidates tell us how important they are and why we should trust them. I know, and we all laugh, don't we? The importance of coming to church is about one moment out of our day, out of our week, out of our lives, when we are simply reminded of the realities of heaven, of what is going on in this world and how God sees all going on in this world And it's a moment in time for us just to stop and pause and rest and marvel and sing and clap and celebrate and study of these glorious realities that are really going on in heaven. That's how God sees the world. So when you come to church on a Sunday morning, you're really not coming to church simply to get some good nugget that you can walk away from. You're literally coming to church to get a glimpse of the heavenly realities of what is going on in heaven and how God sees the world. In a sense, what you're doing is you're coming to church to get a picture of a biblical vision of how God sees the universe and the world. I don't know if you know that or not. To me, when I think of these things, these are anything but boring. To marvel at and wonder and be astounded at how the heavenly God is orchestrating all things according to the kind intention of His will 
through the power of His own Son and Spirit at work in our world today gives me incredible hope and gives me every reason to sing and celebrate. Because you come into this gathering... After maybe some of you have had a bad health diagnosis, you've had money that has gone out faster than your month is moving forward. You have had problems with your children. You look on the news feeds and you see disaster after disaster. And what is church to be about? It is to be about lifting our gaze to heavenly realities of what God says in his word that he is up to. And that's what we're going to do again this Sunday. We are just simply going to once again marvel at how God sees the world. We're going to look at Psalm 47, and we're just going to consider our exalted God in the midst of this crazy world. What you're going to find in nine very brief verses is something fascinating. In nine verses, you're going to see the breadth of God's work in the world. And listen, in the universal history of the world. In nine verses, the world and its troubles are going to just fight to turn your gaze away from the ascended Lord. But this morning, we just want to lift our eyes up and just consider the ascended Christ and how he sees everything. Now, if you're new with us, you got a should got a little program with you. And in that's an outline. The outline has a big idea in it. And the big idea is basically kind of what do we want to see in our sermon today? And here's what we want to see in our sermon This morning, the Lord reigns over all and his people worship him. Now, just let that for a moment settle in your heart and and just let it stir something in you by, by letting you ask yourself this morning. When you walked in the door to church, were you coming into the doors of the church to recognize the Lord reigns over all and your response is to worship him. Or did you come like most of us, you know, fighting our kids in the back seat, trying to make sure we put on a happy face, putting all the stuff that just happened in our world in the backdrop, and you're just trying to fight for some joy a little bit? Or do you come in this morning needing, if you will, the moment of the gathering of the saints for the purpose of lifting our gaze up to something way bigger than us, Right? Psalm 47 is, is called a psalm of exaltation or a psalm of ascension. There's not very many of these written in the psalms. There's some debate about why this psalm was written. I'm going to make a case for the fact that it was written in remembrance to a remarkable time in Israel's history in the early part of King David's reign. It was a time when David, who was the most famous and successful king in Israel's history, that David did something that was remarkable. David was a man that deeply loved God, he loved God's glory, and he established the city of Jerusalem or the city of Zion as the city of worship. In David's Jerusalem, or in David's city as they called the city of Jerusalem, he once again made the worship of God the centerpiece of God's people. And in a highlight of David's earthly reign, David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of Israel's life and heart. The Ark of the Covenant was a particular place that the people of God believed that God resided with his people. And so the moment when David brought the Ark of the Covenant, God's Ark, 
into Jerusalem for the first time, reestablishing it, if you will. It was a moment when God was restored to the centerpiece of Israel's heart. As we're going to see that David rejoiced greatly, and you're going to notice the psalm that the psalmist also rejoiced greatly at this. Psalm 47 was very possibly written to rejoice about that moment in time of what what happened. It was a time of celebration, a time of worship, and it was a time of incredible success in Israel. As you read this psalm and as we read it together, I want to ask you a question. In all the successes that God has given you and all the joys that you have in this life, do you rejoice like this psalmist is going to rejoice? Whether or not this psalm was specifically written for that time, one thing we do very clearly know of this psalm is that this psalm and about two other psalms were used in an annual celebration in Israel's history for the purpose of celebrating the victories that God has brought in their life. It was a moment, it's a psalm of how do we respond when God meets us in unusual ways. That's what this psalm is about. Israel's faithful king restored something of remarkable promise and perspective to them by bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of God. And it was a sign that God was on their side. And the response to that moment was Psalm 47. And all through Israel's history, it was that response. So stand with me as we read nine short verses from Psalm 47 and listen to the rejoicing of the psalmist and the people of God. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The people, princes of the peoples, gather as the people of God, of the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Father, would you bless the preaching word and the hearing of the preaching of your word for your glory and the good of your people and the advancement of your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, here's our big idea this morning again, just so you can get it in your system as you read this psalm with me and we study it together. The Lord reigns over all and his people worship him. Let's start by looking at the first point in your outline, which is the Lord in battle and in faithfulness to his people. We're going to see this in verses one through four. You can see that, see the worldwide picture that the psalmist gives when he starts this psalm. Clap your hands, all peoples, and shout to God with loud songs of joy. Notice first the commands. 
clap and shout, which are things to be done at the acknowledgement of a king or a ruler. Now, just for a moment, think with me about uh, the State of the Union address, right? You you maybe have watched those on TV. If you had, it'd be a good exercise for you sometime. Just in the beginning, to hear the Speaker of the House as he calls out to the entire House of Congress, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, and it's loud, and they give this raucous applause, and it doesn't even matter which side of the aisle people come from. They stand in celebration and recognition of, this is the President. Or maybe you watched the recent crowning of the King of England when the Archbishop of Canterbury, after they did all the vows and laid the crown on the king's head, he stood in front of the king and he yelled, Long live the king! And everybody said, Long live the king! It's it's that type of statement and loudness that the psalmist is talking about. Clap your hands to celebrate God. Sing loud, joyful songs. Recognize the king of the universe. These are commands that are given. But notice where these commands and who given to. <clears throat> he says to all people. This isn't to be isolated to the people of God. Or in the psalmist time, to the people of Israel. It's a worldwide command. In other words, all peoples from all nations, all tribes, all tongues are to worship and celebrate and clap their hands and shout loud songs of joyful singing to the Lord. And notice why the psalmist tells us we're to do this. Why is God to be celebrated by all people clapping and loud singing? Notice verse 2. Because God is the God most high. A great king over all the earth. Who is to be feared? What the psalmist is saying here is that God is not one of the many gods, little g. He is the God most high. This is not one of the gods of the pantheon. This is the great king over all the earth. And he is to be feared, not with terrifying fear, but with a respectful, reverence, all type of fear. In verse 2, the psalmist's attention is on all people from all nations. And his point is to to just simply quote the Incredible Hulk, this is not a puny God. This is the God Most High. In your notes, you'll notice a quote from Ligonier Ministries, and here's what they wrote about this psalm. In other words, Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel, who have been seen by many as the as the being whom the Israelites should worship, but not the being whom the Syrians or the Babylonians should praise. Yet, that is not the perspective of the Old Testament scriptures. What set Israel's religion apart from other ancient religions was its exclusivity. Yahweh was not one God among many who was bound only to Israel. Rather, He was to be worshipped by all the surrounding nations as well. So you can hear the psalmist, can't you? Clap your hands and shout for joy to God, all peoples from all nations. But notice in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist turns his attention to the people of God. To why they should clap and shout to God with loud singing. I mean, all peoples would... Mean, wouldn't it, that God's people most certainly should be those who are 
clapping and celebrating and shouting to God with loud songs. And he gives us a couple reasons. He gives us one reason that God has helped his people. And then he says God has provided for his people. Notice verse 3. God helped his people by subduing their enemies and defeating nations. And notice that the word subdued is in past tense. Israel, the tiny nation whom God had set his love upon, had seen God save them time and time and time again from their enemies. One example was the Egyptians. Another example, which was actually during this time particular, was the Philistines, who at one time had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. But every place that Ark of the Covenant went in the Philistines' nation, it brought all sorts of plagues to them. Because God was subduing the Philistines. These same Philistines were the ones whom King Saul went to battle with night and day until one day he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Israel's camp and God in his mercy caused the Philistines to fight among themselves and turn on one another because God was subduing the Philistines. These same Philistines were the ones who came to battle one day with their giant named Goliath. And you know the story if you know your Bibles very well that young shepherd boy named David, who eventually became king, that brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, killed that giant with a rock and a slingshot because God conquered their enemies. See, verse 3 is a reminder to God's people of God's faithfulness to help his people. But then verse 4 is a reminder how God provided for his people. He says that he chose our heritage, and he uses a funny phrase, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. The phrase, the pride of Jacob, has a few different connotations in the Bible, but in Psalm 47, the pride of Jacob has to do with the land that they are living in, the promised land, the land that God promised to their forefather Abraham and the land that they eventually inherited 400 years after slavery and 40 years of wandering in the desert. God provided them with what he called the pride of Jacob. Now, the psalmist is simply saying this, Israel, God's people, We clap and we shout loud songs to God because God has given us all we can see. God has provided for us. He has taken care of our every need. Therefore, God should be celebrated as our king with clapping and loud singing to God. But another connotation of the pride of Israel has to do something very interesting. God was called the pride of Israel. God provided himself to his people as their king, their master, and their inheritance. Israel had a unique relationship with the living God that differed from all those other surrounding nations. God was their provider, their portion, their possession. Therefore, they had every reason to clap and shout loud, joyful songs to the Lord. Now, with that history behind you about this psalm, just just draw a few things out with me, if you don't mind, just to apply it to your own soul. First, I want you to notice, do you see the command for clapping and shouting with loud, joyful singing? Do you see the command? This means yes. This means no. Okay, you can follow me here. Okay, great. All right. Guess who this means? Shout, clap, all peoples. That would mean us. The psalmist's expectation here is for a high volume of praise. It's intriguing. In our first, you know, first world problems that we have, 
we generally get caught up in the quality of the music. We get caught up in the sound of the music. We get caught up in, are there melodies being heard? Can I clearly hear the vocalist? Do I really like the lyrics on the page? For those of you who've been to a third world country, you know that none of that matters to them. Right? I've literally been in third world countries where I thought, I leaned over to a buddy of mine from Australia and I said, I don't know about you, my ears are bleeding. There was such a raucous sound of people praising God simply because they understood something about the risen Christ. What's interesting in the psalm, you'll notice that the quantity of sound is all people. And you'll notice the quality of sound is clapping and shouting. It has nothing to do with decibel levels or if you can hear certain melodies that inspire you to sing or whether or not you actually like the lyrics that are on the page or whether or not you're an old school hymn person or you're a new school chorus person. None of that stuff seems to matter to those in the text. Rather, the command is what? Clap. Sing with loud shouting to the Lord songs of joyful praise. Now, just for a moment, let that settle in your heart when you may not call yourself a singer. You may worry about what other people might think about your voice. Or maybe for some of you, you don't want to clap and get all charismatic-like. You know what I mean? You just don't want to look a little weird. Maybe you don't know the beat, right? Because you just can't keep a beat. You can't sing and clap at the same time, right? All the But notice again, none of that stuff seems to matter in the song. It's simply a command to clap and shout to the Lord songs of joyful praise. These are commands from God for us to adhere to. And again, I just want to ask you a question. As you walked in the room thinking for a moment that you are joining forces with the angelic beings of heaven celebrating the glories of Christ, did you come with your voice prepared to shout loud songs? See? I don't have any problem shouting, as you can tell, right? I don't have an inside voice. My kids know that, right? I stand down there in that dugout often and on that third baseline, and my wife will tell me, just be aware, we can hear everything you say, right? (laughs) Clap your hands and shout to God with loud singing. That's the first thing to notice. But also notice the whys. Why? Why? Friends, listen, we are not here to worship one option among the gods. We, we are not here to just pick menu items and go to a buffet of the God that we choose. We are serving and worshiping the God most high. Who is to be Feared and respected. See, our challenge in our world is we are now living in a regular pluralistic culture where people want options for spirituality and eternal life. We have many options for entertainment. We have many options for music. We have many options for movies. We have many options for church. But can I just encourage you to understand that what the Bible's telling us is there is no option for worship. There is the God most high. We live in a culture that loves the statement, it may be good for you, but it's not good for me. Those are all pluralistic ideals. 
But that is not the God that you and I come together to worship. It's not like picking a a dessert. He is God Most High, who, listen, deserves all the worship of every human being in the history of the world and all the beings in universal history from eternity past to eternity future. That's who you're dealing with. See, you might come here and you think, listen, dude, I don't worship your God. And I don't think of him as as that big like you do. I think he's much smaller than you think he is. And my response to you is not to debate you. My response is to you is just tell you what the word of God says. Well, friend, listen, he is the God most high who is to be respected and revered. And it would serve you best now and in your future to clap and shout loud, joyful songs to him of adoration and belief. And Christian, don't. Don't we have remarkable reasons to worship God? I mean, don't we? Because he helps us and he has provided for us. I mean, think about just at the most foundational level what Christ has done for you. He has subdued our enemies and he has put nations under his feet. Now, our enemies may not be physical like Goliath, but can I assure you that they are bigger They may not be physical nations like the Philistines, but can I tell you that they are far, they are more far reaching than what the Philistines could ever dream of doing? Our God through King Jesus has defeated our sin and rebellion against God through his life, death, and resurrection, and he has done it. He has come to defeat the one who is the power of death, that is the devil, by living in our place and dying in our place and being resurrected from the dead. And he has done it. And he has put the kingdom of darkness on notice. That kingdom ruled by sin and Satan is being overrun by our God through the power of the risen Christ. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has subdued our enemies and put evil nations under his feet. Do you see what your God has done? And he has provided a heritage for us. We may not have a physical promised land like the people of Israel. But listen, friends, if you're a child of God, you are looking for a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. We've been granted access to the celestial heavenly city whose founder and builder is God. And God, and God, our is our inheritance and our heritage. You and I have been given unique access by grace into a relationship with the living God. Meaning, you have been moved from the courtroom to the family room. You have access to God as your father, as your joyful receiver, sitting you at the table, at his table, his family table, as beloved children. So dear Christians, listen, let us come. Let us obey the commands. Clap and shout to God with loud singing. You can say amen to that. It's okay. It's okay. I mean, just give me, I'll just, I'll let God's words be. Clap and have loud singing to God. Amen. Yeah, that's right. That, that should be the appropriate result. Now that brings us to our second point, right? Y'all are funny, man. I mean, like, wow. I mean, I, I mean, I, we're, we're preaching the text here, right? I mean, right? 
This is the second point, which is the Lord in ascension and his people's response. You're going to see this in verses 5 through 7. Notice something interesting in the psalm. If you follow the progression of the psalm, you'll see something intriguing. Verses 3 and 4 seem to be the Lord in battle and showing faithfulness to his people. And then there's a transition that happens in verse 5. The Lord ascends or goes up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, this is why I say that I think this psalm was written in remembrance of the moment when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem for the first time. Because in that moment, you're going to notice some shouting and loud singing and trumpets playing. And every cross-reference in your Bible points back to 2 Samuel 6, verse 15, which is that very verse. So imagine for a moment just a ticker tape parade. You've all seen them. You've seen sports champions be a part of their travels through the cities or war heroes given a parade in their honor. What are people doing in that moment? They're clapping. They're celebrating. They're shouting. That's what happened in Jerusalem that day. The Ark of the Covenant was given a parade. And it ascended to a holy hill called Jerusalem, the holy city of God. When this happened, David brought up the ark with shouting and a loud horn. But something intriguing is on the, on the heavenly side of this, we get a picture of what's going on in Psalm 47. We get to see how does God see the moment of the ark's ascension. The psalm tells us that God is shouting and God is blowing the horn. In other words, the ark's ascension meant that God had returned to the center of his people's life and their nation. And in that moment, it was a remarkable moment of victory, joy, and celebration, not just on earth, but in heaven. The Lord ascended. Now, what's the command the psalmist gives in response to this ascension? Notice verse 6. Four times in one verse, they are commanded to do what? Sing. Sing. In your notes, Donald Williams wrote it like this. Praise goes with a battle already won. God is to be worshipped in the battle because he is the universal sovereign king and will therefore win. Church, do you believe that? His enemies must fail, and we are victorious in him. Now, what's intriguing about Psalm 47 is that this psalm talks about that the Lord had ascended, yet the Lord knew that coming in Israel's history was going to be what? More battles. And what does God tell them to do in the midst of the ascension? in recognition of the ascension, as they go into their battles. He tells them to what? Sing. He tells them to sing. The response of God's people to God's ascension is singing, worshiping, celebrating, marveling at a victory already won, even though the battle is something we are entering into. And notice what the ascension meant in verse 7. When God's ark came in, it went up to the holy hill. What did it mean to the people of God? It meant this. God is the king of all the earth. And what are they to do? 
sing. See, God ascending with a shout meant that the king of all the earth had come. And the response is to sing to him and recognize his kingship over all things. This moment of ascension revealed something to the people of God. God was on his throne. I want to draw two things out of this I think will help you see this from the New Testament perspective. The ascension of God in this chapter is reminiscent of another ascension 2,000 years ago. Forty days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he went up to heaven. He ascended. And he went up with a shout. The ascension of Jesus was a monumental moment when our king, the king of kings, sat down on his throne. And listen, according to the Old Testament, not according just to the New Testament, according to the Old Testament, it was a moment when Jesus was given authority, dominion, glory, and listen to this phrase, this word, nations. It was a moment of recognition that all nations and peoples should serve this king. He was given a kingdom that would never be destroyed and is always advancing and always growing. Jesus' ascension was a moment when all of heaven put on a parade for King Jesus and God shouted. God blew a, a trumpet because the crucified, risen Christ had ascended to his throne. And what you're going to notice is intriguing is, just like the progression of this psalm, when God subdued their enemies and then we see God ascending, we see the same in Jesus' ascension, don't we? It came after him subduing and defeating our enemies and bringing all things under his feet. And church, listen, that's why you're commanded to sing. You're commanded to sing because you have a king who is right now seated on his throne, faithfully, joyfully, celebratingly ruling over all things. Your king is not shocked by the news of the day. He's not taken advantage of by the election officials. None of that happens. The money in your bank account that leaves is not a shock to your God. He is ruling over all things. That's why you are to sing. Now, this does not mean that we're weird. Right? It doesn't mean that in solemn, sorrowful times that we sing songs in ignorance of what's really transpiring around us. Nor does it mean that we ignore the realities of stuff going on around us. Right? We don't ignore the fact that one of our brothers, Owen, went to home to be with the Lord and he died. He's no longer with us and we're going to miss him. We don't ignore the fact that there's hardships in this world. What this means is this. We have a king who is universally victorious. And he is right now seated in the heavens and he is right now the king overall. And we right now in response to that king are saying what? Long live the king. Our king reigns. Yes, this is hard, but my God is overseeing it all. Our allegiance is to our God, and we sing. We are not lost in our sorrows, nor are we destroyed by our defeats. We are committed to our risen Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of God, and our, our knees bow to no one else. That's what this means. But it also means something else. And I just want you to 
process this with what you're going to see going on in your city. This means that we do not battle with the same weapons of the war, of the rest of the world. Notice something fascinating. The world's going to come out with accusations, unforgiveness, hate, and intimidation. But we, the people of God, we fight with different weapons. We fight the fight with faith, with grace, with love, with mercy, and something else. We fight it with singing, with rejoicing. And we do this, why? Because our king has ascended to his holy hill. So are you, are you singing yet? Is your heart rejoicing yet? That leads us to our last point, which is the Lord over all and exalted. You'll see this in verses 8 and 9. The psalmist comes to the obvious conclusion in verse 8, right? The Lord reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy hill. For the Jewish people in this time, when they recognize the victory of God and the care of God to bring the ark back in, this would have been their conclusion as well. There's peace on our side. God is reigning over all. The Lord has returned. The ark is in its place in Jerusalem. God is reigning over all, and we're good. Everything's good. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. Notice what he does in verse 9. He continues down a most unexpected path. He says, the princes of the peoples, that's people groups, gather as the people of God of Abraham for or because the shields of the earth, that means all the power, military might of the universe and the earth, belong to God. Why? Because God is highly exalted. In other words, what the psalmist does is his conclusion goes a little beyond what maybe the Jewish mind might have been. The psalmist's conclusion was this. The Lord subduing his enemies and our enemies and ascending to his holy hill means that everything, this world and universe, kings, princes, people groups, nations, armies, nuclear weapons, shields, belong to God. And one day, one day, they will all gather around God just like the people of Israel or the people of Abraham gathered around God as God's people. In other words, what this last verse is, which should stir you, is this is the culmination or the fulfillment of the psalmist's vision of God's exaltation and God's ascension. Remember where the psalm started in verse 1. Look back with me with it. Clap your hands and shout to God with loud singing, all peoples. And where does it end? With all people groups gathered around God as his people. Now friends, let me tell you what this is. This is the biblical vision of how God sees the world and where he's taking everything. That's what this is. Now, let me tell you why I'm poor. this is so important for you. Because if you do not understand the biblical vision of what God is accomplishing, you will get impatient, you'll get angry, you'll get tired, you'll get weary, you'll do unwise things in your zeal to try to stir God to do something in your world when God looks at you like you're a fool because he's already doing that. 
The biblical vision of God, if you've ever wondered, how does God see our world? This is it. God's vantage point has always been people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping Him and being His people. If you don't believe it, then let me just give you a biblical history for a moment. The very first book of the Bible, Genesis, when God spoke to Abram, he said, your people will be a blessing to all nations. The very last book of the Bible, what do you find happening? People from every tribe, nation, and tongue gathered around the throne of God as God's people worshiping. That is the biblical vision of what God is accomplishing. And we got it in just nine verses, didn't we? Now, you might be asking, well, then how are we going to get there, Pastor? I mean, good grief. I mean, the psalm doesn't tell us that. And you're right, it doesn't. So we're left with what the Bible gives us about how we get there. And we can know from biblical history that God started with a people called Israel. He put his presence with them, made a covenant with them, and provided everything they needed. But when they sinned and rebelled against God and turned to the idols of the nations surrounding them, what did God do? He gave them over to, the, to their enemies and he exiled them from their land. Jesus, the Son of God, came and warned them about it. Even told the people of Israel that he was going to take the kingdom of God from them and give it to a nation that would produce Fruit. He told them all they needed to do was repent and turn to God by putting their trust in Him as their Messiah, their King, and their Savior. But what did they do? They refused. And so what happened? Their holy city, Jerusalem, was destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans, along with their temple. And something disappeared that we have never found. The Ark of the Covenant. But what instead remains? Jesus lived. Jesus died, was raised from the dead, and ascended, eventually ascended to heaven, as we talked about, as the King of kings and Lords of Lord of Lords, to oversee the work of doing what? Bringing all nations, tribes, and tongues under his sovereign rule. And how does he do it? He does it by the power of his good news or the power of the gospel. That anyone who puts their faith and confidence and trust in the risen, ascended Christ, God will forgive their sin and they will become a member of God's family. They have a seat at God's table and they will represent their king on this earth as we are living now. And his people then, God's people, go to people from every nation, tribe and tongue, making disciples through the power of Christ, teaching them everything that Christ taught us. It's called the Great Commission. And what you notice through this plan is God is working out His plan for all nations and peoples through the power of Christ at work in the church. Which is why you come to church every Sunday. Because when you leave here, you are going to represent your king in this world and taking the gospel to your friends and your family your family and your co-workers and your neighbors and you're representing Christ as an ambassador of Christ for what reason? For the end of all things that God one day will bring everything into culmination under his feet that all people from, from people from every nation, tribe and tongue will worship the risen Christ. 
See, this is why we can agree with what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. It's in your notes as well. That God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that not sound like Psalm 47? See, this is the way God sees the world and our history. And what it does is it culminates with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue clapping and shouting loud songs of praise to God. See why you need patience in this world? See why you need wisdom in this world? Do you see now you need to know how to engage your world with the power of the gospel? So how, how should we respond to this? Well, obviously, if you're not a Christian, then our plea to you would be this. You, you should respond by turning and believing in Christ. You should turn by looking to him and acknowledging that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there will be a day when you will give an account of your life before him. And it would be much better to do that bowing your knee now to him in humility than doing it later in humiliation. And we would just call upon you to turn to the living Christ. That's the only way to have forgiveness of sin. The only way to have a seat at God's table. The only way to have true abundant life on this earth and abundant life later. And then join us. Join us as Christians. Because Christians, the way we should respond is how? (laughs) Clapping. Shouting to God with loud, joyful songs. And singing. We are to sing to our God and about our God. We are to sing to our King. Listen, your world is hard. It's challenging. Yes, there's more craziness going on than we even know. But God is not shocked. It doesn't remove him from his throne. God is not thrown off his game. He will bring all things into order. And he will conquer every rival's throne through the blood of Christ and the word of your testimony. So listen, clap your hands, shout to God with loud singing, sing to your God, sing to your king. Why? The Lord reigns over all. The Lord has ascended to his holy hill and his people should worship him. So now we're going to test your response by singing. Right? Especially those that go, I'm not a singer. Not a clapper. You know? I don't like the words in the song. Right? I wish we had somebody else leading us. I mean, go through the list of things that just become excuses of getting in the way of obeying the risen Christ. What's your response to the fact that your king has risen and he's on his throne now? You know what it should be? Long live the king. We adore and worship and honor the king. We're his people and we sing to him. We clap because he is our God. He has helped us. He has saved us. He has provided for us. Father, help us. We're going to leave this outpost of heaven today. And as we leave, we're going to be confronted with earthly realities 
that would want to steal our singing. (laughs) Would you, Father, elevate our gaze, even in the midst of this world, above the clouds of this earth and help us to see not just the celestial city, but to see our eternal king. Seated on a throne. And let us, let us go to represent you in this world as ambassadors of the risen, ascended Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.